cast dispersions on the curb stones, you grown tonies. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. I'm currently operating on two hours of sleep because I had an interesting night. I was in bed and I heard a very loud bang and it immediately woke me up. But the severity of the bang was such that I didn't wake up rationally. I didn't wake up and think something must have fallen. Something must have fallen and that's why there was a loud bang. No, I woke up in a state of utter threat and I assumed that there is someone in the house who wants to kill me and now I have to kill them first. So immediately I jumped out of bed and grabbed the nearest object which was a large, a large candle that smells like linen that I bought in TK Maxx. And then I didn't want to turn the lights on because I needed to use the darkness. I needed the darkness as to give me the upper hand on my assassin. So I wandered my house. I skulked my house completely nude in the pitch dark, navigating the hallways, not with my eyes, but by listening to the the clammy sound of my bare feet on the wood floors and kitchen tiles like this. That type of noise. And I kind of knew where I was depending on the sound of my feet. And I was in an interesting state. It was almost like sleep paralysis, but I was walking. So I can only describe it as being definitely half asleep, but also having a bit of a panic attack. And after about three, it was probably three minutes, but it felt like a half an hour. After about three minutes, I kind of came out of it and turned on the lights. And I'm just like completely nude in my kitchen, holding a a, a linen scented TK Maxx candle. And then I kind of woke up and went, right, there's there's not an assassin in my house. I went back up to bed and realized that a mirror in my room, a large mirror had fallen onto the ground. And that's why there was such a loud thud that woke me up. But it was loud enough to send me into temporary psychosis, I suppose you'd call it. Utter panic. There is an assassin here to kill me. Sent by Leo Varadkar because I retweeted some alarming housing statistics. So that was like 2am and I couldn't go back to sleep after that. I couldn't. It was just no way. My adrenaline was too high after that. Even after seeing, it's just a fucking mirror. A mirror fell down. It's nothing. You can go back to sleep. The shock of it woke me up. And it's like, you are not getting back to sleep, buddy. Not after that. So now I'm a tired boy. I'm not going to be too hard on myself over it. Loud bangs in the middle of the night are never good. Not when they wake you up. That's never a... That's never pleasant. You never want that. But in general, you tend to assume that something fell over. That's the first assumption. My brain didn't want to go there. It wanted to go for assassin. But fear not, because I have an absolutely fantastic podcast for you this week. Last Tuesday, at my live podcast in Vicker Street, I got to speak to Keith Duffy, who is someone I've been admiring and fascinated with for a long time. Keith Duffy was in a boy band called Boyzone in the 90s. And they were an Irish boy band who were absolutely fucking gigantic 
in Ireland and the UK in particular. They've had nine UK number one singles at a time when that was incredibly difficult. I'm using the word UK there in a context-specific way, referring to the UK charts. I tend to try not use the word UK if I can, because people who are living in Scotland, the north of Ireland, Wales, some people don't like the term UK. They don't feel like they're part of a United Kingdom. So apologies to those people. I hope you understand the context-specific way I'm using that term. They were huge. They were One Direction huge. Massive. And I suppose the only reason I'm explaining it is if you're in Ireland or England, Scotland, Wales, you know who Boyzone are. I don't need to tell you. But I don't think they were huge in Canada or the United States. So for my listeners in Canada and the US, think like NSYNC or the Backstreet Boys. So here are the reasons I wanted to speak with Keith and I was so excited to do so. I met Keith in like 2013, 2014. I was doing a gig in Edinburgh on St. Patrick's Day and I was doing this gig with half of Boyzone and Keith was there. So I was a child in the 90s. So meeting Keith Duffy as an adult, I couldn't believe it. I was completely starstruck. This was an unbelievably famous person to me. This was someone who was as famous as fucking Bart Simpson. And what I was struck with back in 2013 was how genuinely nice he was as a person. Not in a forced way. He just struck me as an incredibly decent, humble individual who was nice to everybody. Everybody he met on the night. He was just nice to him for the sake of being nice. And I couldn't believe that someone who was this famous who had accomplished so much, was so fucking genuinely humble and completely unaffected or changed in any way by fame. Because I've been doing this job a long time now and I've met a lot of famous people and unfortunately, quite a lot of famous people are damaged by fame itself. They don't come across like real people because they're not treated like real people. They're treated like golden statues so when you meet really famous people the ones that still manage to maintain a sense of genuine humanity they can be quite rare and I can still meet famous people who are friendly and nice and kind but they've lost contact with who they really are they have become the spectacle they've become what other people project on them and it can be uncomfortable to be around because it's odd there's no rules for that so when I first met Keith and he's just this lovely kind friendly person for the sake of it it left a real impression on me it left a real mark on me and in my mind I kind of tried to keep him as a little role model in my head because I do gigs and I go on TV and I do all these things that have notoriety attached to him now thankfully I've got my plastic bag to protect me from a lot of that shit But I still have to be very mindful. I have to be incredibly mindful that I don't lose contact with who I am and that I never treat another person differently even if that person is treating me differently because they saw me on the internet or the telly or up on stage or whatever. And one trick to that is you just focus on the fucking work. You focus on the work and you tell yourself all this is is a job. It's a fucking job and you do it 
and do it to your best ability and then go home to bed and wake up nude in the kitchen holding a linen candle from TK Maxx. So I've always wanted Keith Duffy on the podcast for that reason. I wanted to speak to this nice, humble, friendly man because I figured it'd be a good listen. The other reason I wanted Keith on is because he has genuinely achieved so much and I don't think he gets credit or respect for it. Not only was he in Boys Own, he's he like he's a singer, a dancer, and he was a successful actor. Keith Duffy acted in Coronation Street for four fucking years, and he was good at it. And if you're thinking, oh sure, he was Keith Duffy in Boys Own, of course he got a job on Coronation Street, that's easy. And probably, you know, being well known already definitely would have helped him to get a job on Coronation Street. But that's not going to keep you there for four years. Talent and hard work does. He's also in a new band called Boys Life with Brian McFadden who was in Westlife and you just have to respect that. They're doing loads of gigs, they're setting them out. They've got an album full of originals coming out. I doubt they need to do it. They want to do it. Keith Duffy just likes fucking working and getting out there and gigging. But also another reason is unfortunately like being a boy band in the 90s like Boyzone everyone knows who Boyzone were they were huge but they don't get respect Boyzone I don't think Boyzone get respect in Ireland and often Boyzone are kind of treated as a little bit of a joke and I find that quite unfair when Boyzone are interviewed in particular in Irish media at any point that I can remember they're kind of presented as a novelty they're presented as a lot of lads who like won the fucking lottery and you don't have to be into Boyzone's fucking music like I'm not the target audience for Boyzone's music Boyzone didn't make music for me but still I admire and respect what they've done it's awesome I'm in awe of it nine UK number ones stadium tours being an integral part of the cultural zeitgeist that's unbelievably difficult and it's not fair to call it luck or to say that it just happened because oh they're good looking lads no there's loads of boy bands loads and loads and loads of boy bands there's only one fucking boy zone so I wanted to give Keith a space to tell us that fucking story from his own lived experience and to give him the respect that that deserves not to do it in a, in a tongue in cheek way with a wink and a nod to literally go you've done something fucking amazing please tell us about it and another thing worth mentioning around boy bands in particular a lot of critique around boy bands is actually a form of misogyny because not misogyny towards the lads in the fucking band but the majority audience for boy bands is teenage girls and the reason boy bands aren't given any respect is be- it's because of fucking hipster gatekeepers who decide what real music is. This is real music and this is for lads. And anything that teenage girls might enjoy has to be shit. Therefore it's shit. And I'm not into that. I'm not into invalidating the experience of millions of people just because they're fucking teenage girls. What boy bands try to do is they try to entertain. We're going to make pop music and this pop music is going to be very, very entertaining. 
And we're not trying to make music that's difficult or that challenges the boundaries of what music is. That's not what we're doing. We're here to be as entertaining as we possibly can. And just because you don't like it doesn't mean that it's shit because there are millions of people who think that this is absolutely amazing and it can define it can define people's fucking childhoods and give people huge degrees of meaning. So I think that deserves as much respect as any other fucking genre of music. What's different is the criteria of the critique. Don't judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree. And one example I do want to give actually there, because I said that often the purpose of boy band type music is not to challenge music itself. There's one notable example I can think of, only one example I can think of, where like a boy band style singer released a song that was deeply unconventional and actually did challenge music. And that's a song called Rock On by David Essex from 1973. He just came out with this fucking song that's unlike anything before it and unlike anything that was being released at the time. Just this really weird single that it was like post-rock or post-punk before fucking post-punk. It almost sounded like kraut rock. And that's the one example I can think of of a boy band type singer just releasing this really challenging piece of music that wasn't really trying to entertain the listener. It was trying to challenge the listener, even though it's a bit of a banger. That's Rock On by David Essex. And possibly as well the career of Scott Walker. But I'm unsure on that one. Scott Walker in the early 60s was very much a heartthrob poster boy singer and then he just progressively released some of the most difficult fucking challenging music that you've ever heard especially his later career but I'm unsure if Scott Walker fits that exact definition another reason I wanted Keith Duffy on this podcast was because of the huge work that he has done since the early 2000s in raising awareness around autism he has relentlessly used his platform to destigmatize and to raise awareness for autism and to make autism something that was being spoken about in people's homes where it wasn't being spoken about before. And when I announced that Keith was going to be my guest in Vicar Street, I got so many mails from parents, parents of autistic kids who just wanted me to thank him for all that work that he's done. So this was a fantastic chat I had with Keith. It was an unbelievably fun night. The audience were fucking magnificent. It was a pleasure to be there. I love doing it. And a tiny bit of housekeeping before I get into it. I've got two more fucking Vicar Street gigs on the 5th of April and the 12th of April coming up. And there's only a handful of tickets left for both of these gigs. The pandemic meant that I had two months to plug and promote three Vicar Street gigs, which is quite difficult. So please come along to my Vicar Street Dublin gigs on the 5th of April and the 12th of April I'm going to have fantastic guests and it's going to be a load of crack they're lovely Tuesday night gigs you can come along sit down listen to some wonderful chat you don't have to get rat arsed you'll be up ready for work the next morning with a clear head Keith Duffy doesn't do a lot of interviews especially in Ireland and one thing I'd like to request is most likely some newspaper is going to take a quote out of this podcast some Irish newspaper and they'll turned the quote into an article about something Keith said. I've spoken about this before. For some reason, 
traditional media like radio or print newspapers, they don't like to acknowledge that independent podcasts exist. I think it's because they're threatened by the podcast space. They see it as competition. But if you are going to quote something from this podcast and put it into a newspaper, please credit my podcast, The Blind Boy Podcast. Unfortunately, before, newspapers have quoted guests on my podcast and just said, such and such said on a podcast this week. That's happened more than once with my podcast where a guest has been quoted and the newspaper doesn't mention my podcast. Please don't do that. If you're going to quote content from this podcast, please cite the Blind Boy podcast. Because you wouldn't do it if it was another newspaper or a radio station. That would be unthinkable. You wouldn't say such and such said on a radio station. You'd credit the radio station. So please credit this podcast if you're taking any of this content and putting it into an article. So here's my interview with Kate Duffy. We spoke about the origins of Boy's Own. We spoke about Boy's Life. And here's a bit of clickbait for you. When I was gigging in Edinburgh with Keith in 2013, we accidentally watched a man masturbate to completion. So we speak about that story in great detail. So there's your bit of clickbait. How you doing? (laughs) Keith fucking Duffy! Nice to see you. You were in Boy's Own? (laughs) <laughs> You're in Boy's Life. You were in Coronation Street. You were in Fair City. You've done a lot, Keith. The jack of all trades, a master of none, maybe. And you still look about 23. Thanks very much. <laughs> um, but, like, I, th- I think it's hard for us to appreciate in Ireland just... Boy's Honor were so big that it's hard for us to appreciate the achievements that ye did. Like, ye had, was it nine number ones in the UK? Something like that, yeah. We, we'd about, I think we'd, we'd 25 top three hits in the UK, and we'd, we'd eight number one albums and I think nine number one singles. And that's when that shit was really difficult. Yeah, that's, that's when... When it meant that, something. There was no downloading. Being, you couldn't be in a boy band from Ireland, do you know what I mean? They don't fucking play instruments. They're gobshites, you know? <laughs> They're not talented at all. What the fuck are they? I could do that. Do you know what I mean? And that's what happened. There was a whole kind of a railroad of boy bands getting together in Dublin. Once they saw us on this massive show in, in the UK back in 93, and we won the Best New Band on the Road award, and it was all over the t- TV and the radio and, and, and press in Ireland. Um, you know, we didn't get home that often back then, but when we did, there was, there was boy bands everywhere, and they couldn't understand why they weren't fucking famous. <laughs> They're going, well, you fucking did it, so why can't we do it? I go, no, there's a bit of work to be done, lads, you know? But... Before that, right, so you come from Donamead. I do. Like, what was, what was your childhood like in Donamead? And what, when did you figure out, fuck it, I'm creative, I'm an artist, I'm a performer? Well, my, my dad, God rest him, um, was a great musician. And I grew up watching my dad performing quite a lot. My mother would be involved in the local amateur dramatics or, you know, panto at Christmas or whatever. Um, there was always instruments around the house. Uh, my brothers play guitar. I never picked up the guitar. It didn't interest me. In fact, I put a hammer through my dad's guitar when I was about four. So I was never allowed <laughs> to pick up a guitar again. And they bought me a drum kit instead. So um, I ended up being in the Dublin All-Stars marching band for a few years. And then I got into the kit. Um, I played in a couple of rock bands before. I never wanted to be in a boy band, by the way. 
I wanted to be a drummer in a rock band. I wanted the whole fucking sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> I didn't want this squeaky clean image with a fucking manager telling me that I couldn't have a girlfriend. Do you know what I mean? That shit went wrong. But, um, you know, I, I, you know I, I loved watching my dad on stage, watching him singing. My dad was a very small man. Myself and my brothers are kind of our big lads. And my dad was a small man but, and quite skinny. So you'd see the veins on his neck popping out when he'd be hitting the high notes. What was and, he singing? What type of tunes? Well, he, he did everything. I mean, in the in later days, he did everything from Oasis to to the, to the Verve and. His, so was his, he doing this for a few quid? This wasn't like ah no, he was amateur. You know, I mean, he might get a few quid. It, it might it might have been paid in a few points, depending on where he was playing. I mean, he was in the show band era, and he was in a band back back in those days, back in the seventies. It was in a band called uh, um, the Kestrels and Brandy. Um, and they got a bit of traction. They got a couple of residencies. I think they had a residency in George Street. They had a residency out in Bray. So, I mean, they, they, they were enjoying what they were doing. The, the talent in Ireland is phenomenal for the size yeah. of our population. You know, um, you, you, you look at the pockets of talent around the country compared, and the success, the international success that we have compared to countries with much bigger populations than us. It's, it's quite bizarre. Even when you look at the UK, the Bands that were really important, they're all Irish. Yes, like, exactly. You know, like exactly. the Beatles. Were I, but like the Beatles, the Beatles are an Irish fucking band. Like even the Sex Pistols, man. Like the Smiths, man. The guitar player in the Smiths, his name is John Matter. <laughs> Mar Morrissey's name is Stephen Patrick Morrissey. Do you know what I mean? But even like uh, the Sex Pistols, his, his name was John Lydon. Like his, yeah. his ma was from Tip. And I, I consider that song... God Save the Queen, that, that's not a punk song, that's a rebel song. That's in the tradition of the fucking wolf tones. But it's, it's in our culture, like music yeah, is yeah, part yeah. of who we are as Irish people. Yeah, we were an oppressed nation for years and I think we entertained ourselves and that kind of dra drags on through, through our kids and you know, our parents passed it on to us. Getting on stage is a scary thing. Like going from someone who's not on stage to then deciding I'm okay to be on a stage is frightening. But it, you growing it, up, it, it, seeing it, it, your dad doing it and seeing your mad doing it, it made it feel a little bit normal No, it never changes. Well, Out of all the guests I've had on this podcast, and I've interviewed like butchers, <laughs> you, you're one of the most nervous about coming up and just talking. And yeah, I'm like, yeah. Keith, man, you were in Bison. <laughs> it's not that. It's not that I'm nervous. It's just that you always want to make sure that you give a good performance and it's that yeah. you, you you know you have to be aware that you, you, you people have paid good money to come and see you so you want to make sure that you're giving them the best version of yourself so you know my dad always said a true performer will always get nervous before they go out on stage um so i'm glad i'm not a fucking butcher i'm glad i get nervous because <laughs> it keeps me aware of myself and and, and makes sure we don't lose the run of ourselves you know because We've both met many people in this business that get the kind of success that we're, we've been lucky and graced with. And well, it, you, not me. It, it does. Well, see, you're being. I yeah. had a little song called Horse Outside in 2010, lads. <laughs> you couldn't walk into a men's room in the country without someone mentioning it for two months. <laughs> I still talk to you about it. Um, no, but like I said, my dad always said, you know, the sign of a true performer is somebody that always gets nervous because they go on. Because nerve is adrenaline. Adrenaline gets you excited. The excitement gives you the energy and the energy gives you the performance. And, and that's what you want to try and do every night of the week. And if, if you're performing, and like we did, myself and Brian did about 68 gigs between September and December last year. And we said, fuck it. It's what we do. We'll do it. You know, absolutely we'll do it. And it was tough. I'm not going to lie. I mean... Eight and a half and hours. And this is Boy's Life now. This, this is the Looting. So this is you and Brian McFadden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the name. 
Well, I mean, it was very, it was very clever, wasn't it? We were going to go with... But it's great. It's we, like, let's well, not pretend here. No, no, no. It's he exa- was in Westlife and I was in Bison. All right, we know it. So we're calling it Boys Life and you're going to have to deal with that. We were going to call it West Zone, but that was already a fucking car park at Dublin Airport. <laughs> <laughs> no, but honestly, we, we, we had no idea that, that it was going to get as successful as it's become. Um, how the fuck do you go from... Because you and Shane Lynch grew up close to each other. Yeah. How do you go from that to all of a sudden auditioning for a boy? Like, how the I, fuck I, do you end I up in Boys on? How did you end up in Boys on? I don't think we really knew what we were trying to achieve. I mean, especially, we, we certainly didn't know what success was. I think we were both at loose ends. Shane was working as a mechanic for his dad at the time. And although he loves cars and, and all the business, he, he was working a long week. Um, I wasn't really doing an awful lot at the time. I, was, uh, I, I had started an architectural uh, course in Finglas, uh, like, a, like a post-Leavenstair course. And uh, I didn't. I never went in. To be honest, I I was hanging out in town most of the time, living in a little flat in Mary Street, doing things that I probably shouldn't have been doing. <laughs> doing, th- um, doing things <laughs> that I probably shouldn't have been doing, is what I said. Um, but the 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 pod nightclub um, was kind of brought into Dublin. It was the first time that we had a real nightclub with a proper DJ and mixing music, oh, rather nice. than a, a disco where we dance around the yeah, fucking yeah, handbag, yeah. you know. So we had all those places in Dublin for years, like um, Buster. So you were going to the pod and raving, we, listening so to raving. Going, going to the pod and raving, having different DJs coming in. John Reynolds, God rest him, who started the pod, he had managed Ministry of Sound in yeah. London for years, and he had kind of adopted the idea. You know, it was the first time that you had heterosexuals and, and homosexuals coming together yeah. and, and partying together. Um, everybody got dressed up really cool and John Richmond style gear and it was a real good night out and uh, I was probably too young to be in there at the time but I knew, I knew a couple of people and we got on the guest list or whatever and I just remember going in there and thinking it was amazing and I was in there dancing w- one night um, myself and Shane <laughs> actually dancing by yourselves like in the crowd like no no I was, I was on my own I wasn't with Shane I mean Shane and I knew each other from the gym there was a gym across on Moore Street called um, what was it called? Uh, Unique Physique on Moore Street. <laughs> and this is a true story. And Shane grew up the road from me, right? And I had a big crush on his older sister, Alison. Uh, he had five sisters. And uh, I had a crush on all of them eventually. But at this time, <laughs> at this time it was Alison, you know. But uh, uh, so I trained with Shane in the gym in, in town in Moore Street. And uh, he, Shane was 16 and I was 17 or 18. And uh, this this girl came into the gym one day, this really pretty blonde girl, and the two of us kind of noticed her. She got our attention. And she came over to us, and another guy called Mark Daly, I believe his name was. Uh, he was from Baldoyle. And um, we were, the three of us were in pretty good nick. I played a lot of Gaelic football in Hurland, so, you know, we, we were in pretty good nick. Um, but anyway, she asked us, did we want to be male strippers? And <laughs> at the time, I was working in Frawley's on Thomas Street because my father was a manager up there, and it was a bit of extra work, a bit of extra cash and stuff. Um, but it wasn't a lot of money, you know, and my folks didn't have a lot. So extra money. I, so I said to her, you know, being the, being, being the businessman out of the three of us, <laughs> I said, uh, how much do we get? And I said, and, and how far down do you want us to dress, undress? She said, it's, listen, it's 15 minutes. It's over in some place in the south side called the Seventh Lock or something like this. And it, it's, it's, it's 300 women. It's ladies night. You can't go wrong, <laughs> you know. So... Uh, I said, number one, like my mother being, you know, quite a respectful Bible basher, um, I didn't think that she'd approve. So maybe not tell her would be the obvious answer. Um, and, and she said she'd give us 50 quid punt back in those days. 
we'll give you 50, That's a lot. 50 yeah. pound each, so 150 15 minutes. quid yeah. for 15 minutes. So we kind of thought, wow. So uh, she gave us these three red leather G-strings <laughs> and, uh, and told us to pick an outfit out of this box, you know? So Shane went as a priest. <laughs> and uh, I went as fucking Santa Claus and it wasn't even Christmas. <laughs> Sandy was coming twice that year. <laughs> so, uh, now you have to take into account we were only kids, right? That's so, not making it better at all. <laughs> that's not, that's, if there's one thing the key could have said right there that makes it worse, <laughs> is, oh, G-string dressed up as Santa Claus, but I was a child. <laughs> it's just, uh, listen, I did never, <laughs> I never expected to tell this story, so I, I kind of... We're at the Blind by podcast here. <laughs> Ah, uh, listen, anyway. So how did it go? We did, we did what we had to do, right? We, we, we never did it again. We did what we had to do, but we thought, honestly, when we were finished, we thought we were superstars. Yeah. And there was a nightclub over in Tala at the time called Coco's. And uh, <laughs> myself and Shane, we were, like, we, we were wearing what we wore, right? And we had to dress down to our, to our G-string. But we had to get volunteers there with the audience to come up and gyrate with us and dance with us and one thing and another, you know. And when a gang of girls are there together, they've got loads of confidence, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The problem was we didn't realise that we were a little bit too young for the gig and we probably got more excited than they did. <laughs> <laughs> and wearing a red leather G-string, that Children doesn't look good. Children on the horn! Children on a horn! At a hen party! <laughs> Jesus, we nearly took somebody's eye out once. <laughs> How did that end up being boys on? Because <laughs> that's where he's going with it. Like. So, no, that was the first time Shane and I um, had kind of worked together. We went back to um, we went back to Coco's nightclub, and we were wearing. I remember we were wearing like white jeans and a black leather waistcoat with a, like a vest underneath. But shortly after being in Coco's, the vest came off, and we all and they had the waistcoat on, thinking we were cool. You know, dancing around the place, posing, thinking we were wonderful. And the press were there that night doing shots, and they took a shot of myself and Shane holding this girl up across her arms. And, like, my mum and dad thought it was in my mate's house having a sleepover. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> anyway, the next day, I, was, I remember, I was, it was, the next day was a Saturday, and I was working up in Frawley's in Thomas Street. It's well gone now, but I mean, Frawley's was there for over 115 years. But um, I went into the boys' changing room, at lunchtime, and there was a guy, George Matthews, sitting reading the newspaper, and uh, he opened a page where Frollies had taken a full-page ad, which would have been my dad that, that had organised <laughs> a full-page ad, but on the back side of the page was me and Shane, tops off, holding up this girl, going, Keith, Duffy and Shane Lynch haven't done male stripping in the seven lock, come back to Cocos for an after-show party, you know? <laughs> Jesus Christ. And George says to me, because my dad was like the manager, so kind of the boss, and he just said, you're dead, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Your dad's going to kill you, you know. When I think of it now, like, I mean, honest to God, my poor parents. But um, anyway, myself and Shane, you know, like I say, that, that's, that's what we knew of each other. We did it once. We never did it again. We trained the gym regularly. But I saw him on the front page of the Herald with Colin Farrell and a guy called Mark. Um, I can't remember his name. With a line dancing. Sorry? Line dancing. Well, Colin was doing line dancing at the time. But Colin and Shane, Louis Walsh had basically got a front page of the Herald going that Ireland are making their own Irish take that. Okay, and, yeah, yeah. And these were the first three members of the band. And it was Shane, uh, Colin Farrell, and this guy, Fuck Mark. Fuck off! I didn't know that. Colin Farrell was one of the original members of the band. I did, did you know that? I didn't know that. Yeah, put it in Google and you'll see. 
yeah, God loved me really fucked up there, didn't he? <laughs> I'd say he's shitting himself now. <laughs> what a big mistake in life to make, Colin. <laughs> anyway, like I said, I, you know, I wasn't really doing an awful lot that I was happy with at the time, and I knew Shane, and I said to Shane, I said, look, what's this band thing you're putting together, you know? Do you need any more members or whatever? And he said he'd put my name forward to Louis Walsh, but he never did. He didn't want me part of it, you know? He didn't want me kind of taking his, you know, whatever. So, <laughs> nice one. Um, so anyway, through the jigs and the reels, I was in the pod dancing one night, and one of the speakers front, front stage, like on the stage, dancing away, and, and uh, this guy starts kind of pulling at me jeans, going, come here, I want to talk to you. I thought it was a bouncer. I said, yeah, what have I done? And he said, I want to talk to you inside. They had this kind of, it was the <coughs> railway arches on Harcourt Street, so they had this kind of VIP room that, that I always kind of wanted to get in because you always, I, me, I remember one night seeing Paul Yates and, and, and Michael Hutchins going in there and, yeah. you know, God rest them. But so many people that, you know, I was kind of a fan of, the U2 lads were always in there. And he said, do you want to go inside? And I said, no, I, I wouldn't get in there. And so he, he brought me into the, to the VIP room and said, what will you have to drink? And I had a Jack Daniels and Coke. And he said, um, can you sing? And I thought, uh, well... <laughs> You know, I, I'm often up on the Gale karaoke machine, but I said, I, I, I come from a family of singers and blah, blah, blah. And, and he brought me into the back room and made me sing a few songs. And that was Louis Walsh. And he said, come and see me on Wednesday in the Ormond Key building in Dublin. I'm putting a band together. And I said, this isn't that band with, with uh, Colin and, and Shane. He goes, yeah, do you know the boys? I said, yeah, yeah, I know, I know the two of them well. He goes, oh, that, that's great. That makes for a great friendship in the band. And come on Wednesday, but uh, I never made it that Wednesday. I mean, no mobile phones back then. Um, I think uh, I was back in Mary Street on Wednesday and I, I forgot. <laughs> you know, I was busy doing things I shouldn't have been doing. Um, and my mum got in contact with me and she said, look, I've had this man on the phone, Louis Walsh. He said, you let him down, you're supposed to meet him and he's very annoyed. And I said, fuck him, like, I, I didn't promise him anything. You know? <laughs> and uh, um, she said, well, look, he really wants you to be in his band and he thinks you'd be great for it. And, you know, I think, I think you should go and, and see what you think. So there was one audition left the following Wednesday, which I went to. And by this time, it kind of, I think it, there was like six or seven guys initially. It was down to like 15 or 20 at this stage. And I went in and that night they, uh, they, they hired, or, well, Louis put six of us together. Um, and that's how we kind of originated. Um, Mikey Graham wasn't in the band then. It was uh, Mark Walton and Richard Rock, Dickie Rock's son. Yeah. Um, and that lineup changed after about four or five months. And Mikey Graham came in and Richie Rock and Mark Walton left. Um, and then we did nothing for a year and Louis wasn't interested and anybody else that was involved kind of fell away. And we kept ourselves together and, and we kind of kept pushing and, and, and kept meeting up once so a week. So you became self-motivated at that point. We became self-motivated, but we didn't really know what we were looking for. We didn't know the business that we were in and we didn't know how to get... We didn't know what we needed to do. And did we're, you even have songs at that point? We, we, we had recorded a couple of songs, uh, just cover versions that we had put a vocal down on. And Because um, you remember that... <clears throat> now, I want to bring this up, but the famous Late Late performance, yeah. right? Would have been around that time or slightly so, afterwards. So, and I remember so, Gay Byrne saying, uh, you don't have any songs, you don't have this. And I always used to get pissed off with that because it was really condescending. It was like you well, were being well, laughed he, at. He actually was condescending. And we, we were only babies. You know, we were 16, yeah. 17. The way we were treated was horrendous. When I look back on it now, if yeah. anybody done that to one of my kids, I'd be fucking disgusted. Yeah. You know, because we were led in blind. I mean, it was Thursday night, the night before, the Friday night of the Late Late Show, yeah. that the six of us were put together. 
And then Louis said, the first thing you're going to do is a band is you're on the Late Late Show tomorrow night. And we said, but what are we going to do? What yeah. we, he said, I'll just dance or do something. He said, it'll be fine. And we honestly didn't know what to do. And Shane's sister, older sister Tara, who was lovely as well, um, <laughs> <laughs> she, she was a dancer and a choreographer and she had danced with Stephen uh, Gately. Um, so she came out to RTE with us that night and we played that dance tune that was yeah. all over the clubs at the time. And she just kind of tried to teach us this unified dance routine and, uh, and dressed us. And, and we all brought clothes from home and we kind of, like my granny, God rest her, would kill me because I don't know, I, I wore Budweiser braces over <laughs> a, a bare chest, you know. Where the fuck did you get Budweiser braces? Uh, off this really good looking girl that was doing like a Budweiser kind of endorsement in a bar one night. And okay, I robbed her braces. yeah, yeah, yeah. I robbed her braces um, <clears throat> that night in the bar. Not, not later. Um, just to clarify that. <laughs> but um, I wore the Budweiser braces and I, I had a white vest. My, I was in my granny's in Dunny Kearney and I was going out to RTE and my granny ironed me jeans and she, <coughs> she ironed me, me vest. And then I went on without the vest and just the braces. And my granny says, you little shite, you. Going on to, <laughs> Here's me telling all the girls down the post office on Friday that my grandson's on the Late Late Show and I see it like that with no top on after me ironing your shirt. Jesus. So yeah, she wasn't too happy. Um, so that's how Boys on started, and then it kind of fell apart. Like I said, the interest kind of fell out of it then, and, and there was no traction. And the boys, we kind of kept ourselves going together, and then I kept on pushing on Louis and ringing Louis. Um, and Louis was very busy at the time with a band called Who's Eddie. Uh, I remember he was booking Who's Eddie in every bar around. Absolutely Dublin. huge band. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know when he was getting Linda Martin the odd gig or Johnny Logan, you know he's doing Who's Eddie as well. But Louis, Louis took a, a better interest then and started making phone calls and start getting people's interest. And between the jigs and the reels, Richie and Mark fell apart and, and, and Mikey came in. Um, and even then, we were getting a little bit more traction, but nothing was happening. Um, and then a girl by the name of Michelle Hockley um, came and saw us performing in, in um, um, Temple Bar in the Rock Garden. Don't know if it's still there now. Um, and we did a gig in the Rock Garden, three songs. Um, and she really liked what she saw. And she said, look, I'm putting together the Smash Hits Roadshow. We've got Take That, E17, Bad Boys Inc., EYC, PJ and Duncan, which is Anthony They were Deck, fucking huge, Anthony yeah. Deck, I know. remember them, man. Um, so there, uh, it, it was prop, all the kind of pop groups of the, of the 90s were going out on tour together. But they were putting in three new unsigned acts um, to go on as a competition for the best new band on the road. And every night in every arena, people would be given a piece of paper and at, there was bins at the end of the arena and they would put their piece of paper for their favourite band in whatever bin. So this was market research, like? Pretty much, but they were trying to find who their favourite act was. There was yeah, a, yeah. There was a band called, there was a solo singer from Australia. There was another band, two guys, two girls, like an ABBA type thing. And there was Boyzone. And whoever won the best new act on the road got to perform at the Smash Hits Poll Winners Party, yeah. which is a massive show in London's uh, East End in the arena. And it goes out live on TV. Yeah. And Will Smith was hosting it that year. And we... I watched that when I was a child. He performed Boom Boom Shake the Room. And I got so excited, I hit my friend Stephen into the face and I wasn't allowed to watch the rest. <laughs> <clears throat> I remember you, it. Poor old Stephen, if you hadn't hurt him, you would have been, you would have made to see the fact that we won the award. And when <laughs> I, I think, missed it, yeah, because I was in trouble for hitting my friend. <laughs> but looking back on it now, I, I did the acceptance speech. Now, granted, we might have been together for maybe a year and a half, two years at this stage, but it was the first real thing that we ever did. 
And at the time, it was very difficult in Dublin because it wasn't cool to be yeah. in a boy band. So going back to Donna Mead, there was quite a lot of bullying went on, a lot of name calling went on. Mm-hmm. Myself and Shane struggled quite a bit. We'd, we'd have to get from Grangemore and Donna Mead through Donna Mead, through St. Donna's, down to um, Hope Junction train station. Because you're darts. not earning money at this point. No, we haven't a shilling. Yeah. And, but we know outfits. So we used to wear our outfits on the, on the dart to get into town, <laughs> to get the bus to go to the Glenties in Donegal, to some nightclub, you know what I mean? Or, or, or down to Cove and Cork or something like that, you know? And at the time in Ireland and around the country, they had the discos and whatever, yeah. you know, and we had the slow sets, you know? Yeah. And, and the boys always looked forward to the slow sets. I'm sure the girls did too, but I was a boy. But, you know, you'd pick the girl that you fancied in the, in the room, you'd wait for the slow set, you'd walk over and you'd say, are you getting up, right? And if the girls did, yeah, you know, you'd get up and you'd have the slow dance and you'd kind of reach back and see if she's any way interested in maybe a little snog, you know? And if she reaches back as well, you kind of go across and the lips meet and then you go, oh, we get a kiss in here, you know? And you'd have a little snog and then the hands might drop down and let it squeeze, you know? <laughs> so you always look forward to the slow set. So these, these promoters are booking Boyzone to come in and do a performance instead of the slow set. Oh, no. So, of course, the local lads are going to fucking hate us. Do you know what I mean? So, I mean, getting down to the train station was an ordeal because you'd have Chain and me wearing baseball caps sideways with, like, denim, uh, fucking, you know, dungarees, bleach, bleached white, <coughs> you know, standing out from the crowd big time. And then you'd have the, the local gangs just going, look at these two gobshites, you know? Yeah. And, and they'd rob our trainers, you know? They, they'd make us wear their trainers and they'd rob our trainers. They, you know, it, we, we had I love some... the fact that they not only stole your shoes, but are like, you have to wear mine. Well, I don't think they would have mind if we didn't wear theirs, but we had to wear fucking something. All right. right? So, so it was... It was a, <laughs> can you at least give me yours? Well, they were just thrown to the floor, so I think we just put them on. So it, it was tough because we were kids and I think the negative reaction that we got from a lot of people at the time, even, so the, the Power Winners Party thing, we'd struggled enough, to, you know, I'm thinking about it now. We must have been affected in some way already at that stage because when I look back, and my, kid, my kids love to show me old footage of stuff, and when I've seen that video of when we're on the stage with Will Smith receiving the award, you know, I, I kind of say into the microphone, look to everybody back in Ireland, yeah. we fucking made it, you know? Like I had something to say, do you know what I mean? And I was going, my God, if I thought I had shit up until then, <laughs> we'd, we'd, we'd years of shit to come. And it was like, like you said, with the, with the condescending bit with Gay Bourne, it wasn't that we went number one in the UK with our first album and then the first two songs went number one in the charts and we're, we're on every TV show in the UK and we're being... We were flown into Germany to do their big TV show and then Belgium broke for us and then into Holland. And, and all of a sudden, we didn't know what day it was. That we, we were just, we were all over the place. So we never got back home to Ireland that much at all. And um, when we did eventually get home and we went back on the Late Late Show, Corscale goes, Honor, we welcome our boys home, you yeah. know. We celebrate them, you know. And then but, it went the opposite <laughs> way again after that, you know. Because the, the reason I brought up that clip is one thing that pissed me off is... The 25th anniversary of Boyzone, you went back onto the Late Late and they played that. Reluctantly we did, yeah. Yeah, and they played that clip. Was it Tuberty, was it? It was Tuberty, yeah. yeah. And Shane got very pissed off. Shane was having none of it. I kind of, of, you know, I'm always very honest, you know, and I wouldn't take sides for the wrong reason. I I don't don't agree with the way Shane handled it because there's kids watching the show and I'd always be aware of what we're doing and I'd always be aware of an audience. I've always been like that. I have filters, you know. 
So it wouldn't have been my way of reacting. I've got skins. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, just burn the shit, man. <laughs> but so for that reason, you know, I have to say it was probably not right. Yeah. But I understand his but frustration. The anger. I understand the anger. Because it was disrespectful. Because, well, we were having talks with RTE and they were saying, can you come home 25 years, blah, yeah. blah, blah. We, we'd love to have you on the show. And we're going, do you know what? The reality is, you know, in all truth and, and, and fairness, you know, we're a small country. You have a small population, four and a half million people. You know, the UK is 72 million. Most of our work is in the UK. Every time we come home, we get ripped apart for one reason or another. It's very difficult for us. We've got families and kids living here. Yeah. So we try not to keep our profile up here. We'd rather just do what we're doing. You know, it doesn't make much difference financially or anything, whether we gig here or not. A lot of our dedicated Irish fans love a trip away. You know, yeah. they'll fly to Birmingham, they'll fly to Manchester, they'll fly to Glasgow, they'll have a weekend away with the girls. It works for everybody. So, you know, we just want to have a peaceful life. You know, we want this place to be, this is, we're patri very patriotic Irish people. We love Ireland, we love our country, you know, and we want, we, we, we want to be at home here. So if we can get rid of a little bit of profile, it might be helpful because unfortunately yeah. we didn't play instruments on stage. We weren't liked, people didn't know how to like us. They didn't know how to pigeonhole us because we're such a rock-renowned country, trad-renowned country, yeah. great musicians. You've got, like we said, Sinead O'Connor, you too, the Hot House Flowers, the script. You know, we got Picture This Now and all these up-and-coming great bands now. Boyzone came along and we didn't play instruments. We were a boy band. We are a pop group. People didn't like it. They didn't want Boyzone to be associated with Ireland. They didn't want mm -hmm. us to fly the flag. You know what I mean? They wanted yeah. us out of the way. <laughs> And it was very apparent. We felt that, you know, and it created a huge insecurity with the, within us as individuals for a long time. But we, when... when so I did you feel a bit betrayed then, Keith, when, when the late, late bring you back to celebrate 25 years and then they bring up that Well, I was, I was very disappointed because the conversation had happened that, you know, what, what the Irish um, people hadn't seen over the years were the great successes. Yeah. Because we were absolutely shite that night on the Late Late Show. But we went on, like anybody in any job that you do, you get better at it the more and you, you do And you were children. And you, and you grow up and you, and you mature and you become good at your, your craft and you become good at your gig. Nobody was giving us time to get good at our craft. They expected us to know it overnight and it doesn't happen like that. If you remember you two back in the dandelion markets when they are starting mm -hmm. off, Bono's vocals were terrible compared to where they got to. You know, and, and the whole band have matured and, and become brilliant. I mean, I'm a huge U2 fan, but that's the way most bands happen. They, they, they mature together. They find each other's ways. It, yes, in a boy grand band, there's two lead vocals mo most of the time and then the other boys have to do backup vocals. And for my family, that was very disappointing. For my dad especially, it was very disappointing that kind of Ron Mikey and Stephen sang our first single, Working mm -hmm. My Way Back to You. And then Ronan stepped in and Mikey stepped back. And Louis had this attitude, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Mm -hmm. Everybody associates a boy's own song with Stephen Gately and Ronan Keating's voice. So, and that's how we're getting all these number ones. So I don't want the other boys coming in. And he was afraid that the animal was going to get bigger than the creator. So he would have put us down and insult us in front of people that were our heroes to make sure that we weren't getting too big for our boots and yeah. that we were staying grounded. But all he was doing was suppressing our talents and, and making us insecure. So when, it did, when you did get an opportunity to shine or to sing, you didn't want to because you didn't know how to kind of you perform anymore. Down. You, you were beaten down. So with that whole Late Late Show um, situation, we were saying, look... We, we were flown to Modena by Pavarotti and we did a duet with Pavarotti live in front of 200,000 people. And it was amazing, you yeah. know? And we have the clip. We sang with the Bee Gees. We did words with the Bee Gees. We, the Bee Gees wrote words for Elvis Presley who brought it to number three in the charts. Boyzone re-released that and we brought it to number one in the charts. Yeah. You know, and when the Bee Gees did... Um, <laughs> thanks. Um, and it was a lovely moment. And we had that clip 
you know. So and we, that's ridiculous. Like that's that's well, insane. Then, then that's... we had the stuff at U two with it with um, what was the song we did at U two? Um... But even the fact that Keith can't remember the song he did with U two. Well, that 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 gig. I, I was sharing. You've done them. so much, like, and the well, thing is, I work in this fucking industry. What what the boys did is impossible. But we looked up in the archives and we found the footage of it, and it was ju it just imagine. And are you going to RTE going show this, show that? No, show. we're we're not demanding anything. <laughs> They've asked us on. We said we, you know we're not bothered. They said, look, we'll do whatever you want to do. We said, we'd like to perform a couple of songs. Now, you have to take into account, we'd lost Stephen at this stage. There was only mm -hmm. four of us, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I, I had taken most of the vocals that Stephen had done through the years now. And uh, um, looking forward for the first opportunity to kind of be able to stand, like most people in Ireland would say, I don't even know what your fucking voice sounds like because I never got my chance, you know. And, and with stuff, I've been working with Brian now for five or six years. And as you know, we've been gigging all over the world. We haven't done one gig. In, in, in Ireland, it's, it's, it's crazy, you know? Is it part of that you kind of don't fucking want to? Well, it's not that, I mean... Because the gig, like, I, I follow Boy's Life, and I, I, I love, but I, I just love the fact that the two of you are gigging, I love that I can tell this is something that you're doing because you love it. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. can get that vibe. This is something you're doing because you but love it. But we're doing it because And we I can. love seeing you doing well. And I love seeing, like, they're gigging in Dubai. They're gigging in Malaysia. I think that's class. It's great. You see, Brian and I are, are two, the, two of the same characters from two different bands. You know, we never took ourselves that serious. We always kept ourselves quite grounded. You could both um, kick the shit out of ISIS. <laughs> He's on his own with that one. <laughs> I don't get involved with that shit. Um... <laughs> Um, uh, listen, I use social media for, for charity, for promotion, and for the odd bit of family stuff. I certainly don't take on ISIS. <laughs> you, know I mean? you know what I mean? That's Brian. But like, we, we, we do it because we love it. But the reality is, we're, we sell out everywhere we go. Yeah. And, and it's amazing. Now, we're doing theatres like this one, like, you know, most of the old <laughs> theatres in the UK. But then when we get out to the likes of, like, we're out, we're out in July, we're out in, out in Indonesia, Jakarta, Surabaya. We're, we're, um, we do weddings. <laughs> like, we'll get calls up, and I started it, and I managed us for the first few years. And I just said, we like to do what we do, and I yeah. enjoy working. So it's, it's nice work, if you can get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so we tend not to turn anything down. You literally. want to do boys' life gigs in Ireland? It's, you know what, I'm at a stage now where I don't really care. It doesn't bother me that much. Yeah. Um, but that, that said, there's another kind of emotional side to me that would think... Because I'm mad to I'd, see you. I'd, I'd love... I'd love to, you know, I'd love, for me, it's a selfish kind of want, I suppose, because, because I never really truly got to show what I can do in Boys Zone. Yeah. I was suppressed. Um, now that I'm so, you know, upfront and... and in control, I, I I would love to come home from my family and friends, and uh, <laughs> and put a show on. But but I, I suppose it's it's the insecurities that you've grown with over your exactly, life. Exactly. Yeah. That you're afraid to kind of dip your toe in. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sense of when you when you're outside of Ireland, you can feel like I've earned this, I've achieved this. But then you come straight back to Ireland, and that negativity comes in, and you start to doubt. <laughs> you're yourself only in the country a wet day, and you put the radio on, and there's somebody fucking ripping the shit out of you. Yeah. You know what I mean? The fucking tires. Anybody want some tires? <laughs> <laughs> I did I get saying. a genuine question about the tires. If if somebody <laughs> goes into the tire dealership and says, "I was listening to the radio." And Keith Duffy sent me in here to get some fucking <laughs> tires. 
Is that going to work? Absolutely. Ask all my friends. They all do it. <laughs> so it does work. Tell them Keith sent you. Yeah. All right. I don't have a car, but I'll be getting some fucking tires, man. Just, <laughs> just stack them up. Get them for Halloween. Stare at them. Um, we're going to have a little interval so you can have a pint and a piss. We'll be back out in about 15 minutes, all right? Dog bless. Before we continue with the interview with Keith Duffy, it's time for the little ocarina pause where you're going to hear an advert. I actually have my ocarina with me this week because I'm recording this one in my, in my studio, not my office. I found the ocarina. Beautiful ceramic ocarina with a leather strap. I actually found the ocarina because earlier on in the podcast I said that a mirror fell down in my gaff and it gave me a bit of a fright. Well, when I went in to pick the mirror back up, there was the fucking ocarina. It was there on the ground, I just hadn't seen it. Now I'm after freaking myself out because I just realised that possibly the it was some type of podcasting ghost that knocked the mirror and made me find the ocarina. I'm not going to think like that. I can't think like If I think like that now, I won't sleep tonight. Fuck me. Alright, here's the ocarina. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Beautiful, beautiful ocarina. It's been so long since I played that ocarina, lads. It's been possibly three or four months. What a beautiful little instrument. That was... I guess the ocarina is back, lads. Wonderful. So that was the ocarina pause. You probably heard an advert for something, alright? Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page. Patreon. Patreon. The Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash The Blind Boy Podcast. This podcast is my full-time job. This podcast is how I earn a living. I adore doing this work. I adore every fucking second of this work. And it's made possible because I have patrons. So if you're enjoying the podcast, if it's giving you a little bit of solace during the week, a bit of entertainment, whatever, just please consider paying me for that work that I'm doing. What I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. And if you can't afford it, you don't have to. You can listen for free because the person who can afford it is paying for you to listen for free. So that's patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. Also a little Twitch update. 
I'm not going to be on Twitch this Thursday, unfortunately, again. I know that's two weeks of no Twitch, but I'm busy. This Thursday night, I'm doing a live podcast in University of Limerick. Um, it's only available to students from UL. But, but I'll be chatting with a sports psychologist and the rugby player, Keith Wood, who's from Limerick. So I'm looking forward to that. I don't know a huge amount about sports, so I'm definitely looking forward to stepping outside of my comfort zone. I'll be back on Twitch next week on Thursday. Um, Also support this podcast because it's an independent podcast. Being a patron of this podcast keeps it fully independent. I'm not beholden to any advertisers. I make what I want. I put out the content that I'm passionate about. If I was fully reliant on advertisers, then they would get to decide what my content is. And then we don't have a podcast anymore. We have radio. So support not just my independent podcast, but whatever independent podcast you enjoy and that you like listening to. Um, It's important to support independent podcasters. The podcast space is becoming quite corporate. Now back to my interview with the wonderful Keith Duffy, where we speak about that time in Edinburgh where we saw a fellow wank. I just got a note on stage. Please, can I have your red hat? On the back of a COVID notice. Fair fucking play. Fair play. Who asked for the red hat? You may have my red hat. Do you know what? Don't take this on an airplane. Because you'll know when you smell it. (laughs) So I've bought 60 of these. So you can have this, yeah. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) You're welcome. Seriously, wash that before it goes on an airplane. I'm not joking. Um, That's one of those things with my fucking job, man. No. (laughs) You can't have the bag. What bag are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) I'd be doing fucking gigs. Back in the Rubber Bandits days, I'd be doing gigs like the gig we did in Edinburgh. I'd be doing gigs like that. And people would be throwing fucking yokes and throwing everything up on stage, you know? <laughs> but the thing is, someone... I, I could be gigging in Edinburgh, I could be gigging in New York. People are throwing drugs, and I mightn't see it. And Mr. Chrome once got a fucking yoke in his hoodie. <laughs> but, like, that's all fun and games until you're going through airport security tomorrow. <laughs> fucking hell. So a bizarre thing happened backstage, Keith. Before we came... So you were roasting, so you decided to take off your jacket, right? Absolutely fantastic physique. Look at this wonderful man. <laughs> he looks fantastic. But you fucking said to me, you said, before we went out, he takes off his jacket and Keith says to me, is it all right if I take off my jacket? Is that okay? And I'm like, I don't give a fuck. You're an adult. I say, you get conditioned. conditioned. You get conditioned. It's the, boys, or the, the, the boy band thing. You've been conditioned. Yeah, you, you, you know, we were so young, you know. You don't realise... You just fall into, you fall into a routine where you have to kind of make sure that you all follow suit. And uh, believe it or not, in certain performances or certain things that you're doing, whether it be TV or a stage, uh, taking off a jacket could, could make somebody really fucking pissed off. Yeah. You know? Well, not here. <laughs> Keith Duffy. I was fucking sweating. Honest to God, I, I was just... We want fucking... Keith Duffy to be comfortable and free. Can I take off um, me jocks? <laughs> but uh, so another reason I brought you on tonight is we, we've ended up crossing paths numerous times over the years by accident the first one was uh, 
we were in Edinburgh, right? Oh, Jesus. So there's this... And you went back and did it the other fucking week. You did I that did, gig. I, I did it on Thursday. The same so fucking gig. There's this fucking gig, man. And it's the, I, I, I haven't done it in about five years. Paddy's Day, a place called the Three Sisters in Edinburgh. It's mad. It's like yeah. every... It's a, it was just me and him and three girls. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> it's the maddest gig going. It's like every Irish person in Scotland on Patrick's Day pissed, stuffed into one venue. And... It always at half nine in the morning, and they told us they wanted us on stage at half eleven. Yes, that night. Not and you're <laughs> drinking since the, like it's, so it's fucking sick. What's that? Fourteen hours later, it's purgatory, and you have to get yeah, pissed. And no one, everyone expects the performer to be pissed. So one, we were gigging there, and it he was. You want to talk about the story of the guy in the window? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So it was the first time I met you. So we were gigging, and we were sharing a fucking dressing room. It was yourself. It's yourself and Shane and, and... And Big Ben, was it? And Big Ben. And Fats and Small, for some reason. Yeah. That, D, that DJ but combo. But that ben, Ben's from Fats and Small. He done the vocals on uh, Turnaround. You know, hey, yeah. what's wrong with you? Yes. Because yeah. the next day in the local Scottish paper, you got a photograph with Fats and Small, and it said Keith Duffy and the Rubber Bandits. <laughs> and, Bastards. But, uh, so we were doing a gig, man. And it was great. We were having wonderful crack. And then we're backstage, and they gave us this, this uh, room, and there was drink there, where there was everything. No, explain the room, though. Let's try and picture this out. This is unbelievable. I mean, for, for like a shitty little gig like that, the room had king-size bunk, bunk beds. Yeah. Right? A dartboard. A dartboard, a table, a football table, and a, yeah. a pool table, and then a big, huge smeg fridge full of booze. Yeah, but, infinite but, drink. Honestly, it had 42-inch plasma screens at the foot of these king-size bunk beds. So you could get in the bottom bunk and do what the fuck you like and nobody would even see you. Nobody would even know you were there, allegedly. So <laughs> we're there. But we're sharing this room, right? And we've got our bags on. So, but across the way from, like, our dressing room, our, our student flats. So yeah. we're there and we, we turn the lights off because we don't want people looking in and going, oh, there's Bison and the Rubber Bandits. So, but anyway, as we're looking across, right, <laughs> we're getting ready to go on stage. And we were nearly late for stage because of it. <laughs> so this fella decides across the way. So start- no, Hank, there's a courtyard outside our window, right? There's a courtyard outside our window. And the, it's like a U-block, the building that we're in. So our window looks out and there's windows along the right. And then opposite us is another building mirroring the building that we're in. Yes. But somebody is in the window identical to the window that we're in. This is a man who studied architecture in Finglas. <laughs> <laughs> I have to give you the right picture. So we're looking across a drunken courtyard, loads of fucking loads of people drunk in a courtyard, like a beer garden. And we're about the th- third floor up and we're looking across at the third floor window identical to our window, but we've our lights off. Because we don't want to see the rubber bands and boys home. Why? Don't answer that. <laughs> but the guy has the light on in his room. <laughs> so he's so he decides it's time for his evening wank. <laughs> but he doesn't know. He doesn't give a shit about what's going on. This is his house. But the best part of it was, so we're, we're looking across going, that fella's not wearing any pants. What's going on here? What's going on? <laughs> so then he sits down at his window, right? With his back to us. And all we can see is his erect penis, nothing else, <laughs> with a laptop in front of him as he's greedily switching tabs 
on like nine different porn videos. And we watched him like masturbate to completion. But as he's wanking, we, we, made, we made the decision in the dressing room. We made the decision. We all kind of said, if I was having a wank, I kind of would like to turn around and see that like Bison and the rubber bandits are watching. <laughs> so we start fucking banging on the window. Howling and screaming, trying to open the window to throw well, sweets across. The, the window wouldn't open more than that, so we couldn't get our arm out to fuck. We had a load of boxes of M's, M&M's on the table. Yeah, yeah, and we're trying to throw we're them trying across. trying to get the M&M's to hit his window to go, Oi, mate, there's 3,000 people looking at you wanking. But then, of course, the crowd are wondering, well, why the fuck are boys on and the rubber band is throwing <laughs> M&M's on us? And we're trying to go to the crowd. It's not about ye. It's about the fellow wanking. So he didn't see us. He didn't know. He finished his wank, he, he came, and then he, and then he got up and he got up and did, did, did the dishes. He, but Without washing his hands. He did the dishes like fucking pure Donald Duck, t-shirt and no jocks, on a fucking spanty, cum dripping off the top of his glands. Didn't wipe his dick. So... Uh, he, he, and then he, I had to go out and sing horse outside. And, and they were wondering why I was late for stage. Like, and I was in shock. I was just like, this was brilliant. I love the fact that I was with fucking half a boys on looking at a fella wank. This is amazing. So, and, and, then, and then we had such crack that afterwards you, you said to us, you goes, Jesus, lads, I love the stuff that you're doing. It's brilliant. And you said... Boyzone are playing in, in uh, where were you going to, you were playing the point soon. We're going to play the point. You should come on and support us. We've got nothing to lose. <laughs> Which I thought was beautiful because it was, it was a compliment. You meant it, but it was also like, yeah, fuck it, man. We'll fuck up our career. Come on, <laughs> come on and support us, rubber bandits. So then we wrote a song called Boyzone, You've Got Nothing to Lose because of what you said. <laughs> I know. And then a couple of years later, I, so I went into the, 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 what's that news station, News Talk, and I had a hangover or something, and they were interviewing me, and they were asking me about um, traditional desserts, and asking me if Limerick has any traditional desserts. So I was bored, and I lied. <laughs> and I said, yeah, we have a traditional dessert in Limerick called a Sarsfields Gannet, and it's gelatinized cider with a Kit Kat crumbled on top. <laughs> so they believed me. And then it was your birthday. <laughs> yeah. And you came in the next day and they made you a sack. Someone, some poor fucking news talk intern stayed up all night gelatinizing cider and, and gave it to Keith Duffy for his birthday. And they took a photo of Keith and Keith going, what the fucking fuck I had it all as well. Hang he on. He had to eat it. It went further than that. I went to a hotel in, 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 with, with my wife and daughter in Limerick. The George or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have it on their fucking menu now. <laughs> Compliments of me and you. <laughs> Honest to God. <laughs> so, he has pure vodka in that bottle, by the way. I do not. He doesn't drink water. He's he, not straight anyway. <laughs> Let's see if we have any... I got some questions from the internet, so, Keith. Um, oh, fuck. <laughs> There's one of them here. It wasn't I me. I simply have to ask this because the fella who asked it was about 19 and it's a story his dad said to him. Yeah, sure, he wouldn't know who the fuck I am. He goes, can you ask Keith 
<laughs> does, does Keith remember sitting in my flat in Ballymun back in the early 90s, playing with my old fado's video camera, zooming in on all the birds' ditties, asking, where's the tits enlarger on this? Ah, <laughs> oh, man. Look, that is an amazing question. Like, do to, you to remember make that? Up. Like, ha there has to be some truth in that, right? There has to be. No now, one made that no, up. No, you can't make a question like that up. So it's like, somebody's father genuinely told their son <laughs> that story <laughs> about a flat and ballymon and me and Diddy's. But the best, <laughs> where's the tits enlarger on this? But seemingly well, I, I was zooming know, what, in what on the What do you ditties, mean, though? No. I've fucking do, do no you, idea. Do you mean that you could zoom in on tits or that literally the camera would have something that would make breasts larger <laughs> in 1991? <laughs> well, fucking hell. I hope technology's moved on. We'd have a great time. Um, what is your best and worst celebrity encounter? Um, my best celebrity encounter, well, I mean... Um, we spoke a lot of the various people that we were lucky enough to perform with earlier on. Um, but my hero has always been Larry Mullen. Uh, I was a marching drummer. I loved the drums and, and you two are my favourite band. So, you know, out in the shed in the back of my mum and dad's garden, freezing cold, four sweatshirts on, uh, a little garden shed. My drum kit was set up in there. I'd have to open up the door and climb underneath the floor, Tom, and up onto the stool to get behind the kit. And then I had two little shelves with two candles I'd light the candles, and um, after three or four songs, anyway, you'd be, you'd be down to bare skin, even in the middle of the winter, you'd be sweating. But yeah, Larry was always an absolute gentleman. Uh, I met him a couple of times in the early, early days, and he went out of his way to be kind and nice to us. Um, and it's amazing because people do say, you should never meet your heroes because they'll only let you down. And he certainly didn't. He was, he was amazing. He was just, you know, he could see we were excitable young lads, you know, on, on, on a quest of a wave. You know, very, very blessed and lucky to be in the position that we were and that we were excited to meet him. And um, he, he, he just did everything that you would kind of want someone in that position to do. Uh, and, and, be, and, you know, since then, looked after us very, very well when, when we lost Stephen Gately. God mm -hmm. rest him. It was a really horrendous time for us. Um, Stephen was one of the most amazing, beautiful Irish people from Sheriff Street. Um, you know, had a very tough life. And... Um, it was very, very sad. He, he, he managed to make all of his dreams come true in his short life, which gives you great solace because, you know, he wanted to be a singer in a band and he nailed it. He wanted to be an actor and he nailed it. He wanted to be a West End star and he fucking nailed it. And my dad only said that to me shortly. My dad only passed away in recent times, unfortunately, but he'd said to me at one stage, just, um, just before Christmas, he said, Stephen might have died when he was 33, but if you think about it, you know, anytime he was in the house, he always talked about the West End, and that was only a dream at that time. I mean, being successful in Boys Home was only a dream at that time. Mm -hmm. You know, and for uh, he was very verbal about his dreams. And my dad said, I'll never forget him telling me that he was going to be a singer, he was going to be on the West End, he was going to be an actor. And he did all three, and he did all three very well. And if, in, in fact, he went on to write a lovely book called The Tree of Seasons. And, and it was published just after, he, we had it published just after he died. So he was an accomplished writer really as well then. Um, 
So I kind of I kind of derailed my own self there. Yeah, but, you know, just I always like to talk with Stephen a little bit. But, you know, in his short life, he did manage to make all his own dreams come through. And Larry kind of could see the individuals in all of us. And you could see the sensitive side of Stephen and, and, and kind of looked after that. Um, so Larry probably for me was one of the kindest, nicest people that we met. Um, the people that really upset me and, and I was devastated. Um, the first, and I'm not going to dwell long on this guy because I wouldn't give him the fucking airtime. Um, um, what's his name? Jeremy Clarkson. Fucking dickhead. <laughs> Honest to God. You get five Northside Dublin guys, right, in, in, the, in, the, in the BBC very excited about everybody they meet, even the makeup artists. And Jeremy Clarkson's in the, in the makeup seat. He's doing some other show while we're doing a show. And we walk in and he's top gear and we're all into our cars. And we, you know, we, we loved our cars. And, yeah. and to, to see him was amazing. And he was just so awful and rude and arrogant. And your young lads like it, watching Top Gear, being yeah. a fan of what he's doing. He just dismissed us and get away, you fucking Irish boys, you know. Ah, for, fuck, for no need um, for this. So that, was, that, that wasn't nice, you know. There was that no wasn't need nice. for that. And then uh, I was working over in the VH1 Vogue Fashion Awards in Madison Square Gardens. Um, in between joining Coronation Street and leaving Boyzone, I did a bit of presenting and stuff. And I was hired to go over to do all the celebrity interviews for the VH1 Awards. And my, one of my favourite actors, one of my favourite movies was Jerry Maguire. And Cuba Gooding Jr. was just fucking brilliant, you know, showing me the money and all that type of stuff. And I just thought, you know, wow, what a legend. And, and he was my next guy. And I came up and I grabbed his hand and I went, how you doing? Like, fuck, show me the money. And he just went, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> and walked away. And I was devastated. And I kind of looking around and I see, see who saw. <laughs> I needed to kind of just shrivel down and hide. He made me feel about that size, and there's no need to make people in this world feel like that, you know? No. And if you can be anything to anybody, be fucking kind, you know? Exactly. You were on uh, the first ever Celebrity Big Brother as well. That's right, that's right, Jesus. What, like, what was that like, man? That's, that, was that mad? Crazy. I mean, it was nuts. That was 20... 2001. 22 years ago. Yeah. 21 years ago. Um, a long, long time ago. God. It was crazy because I was coming out of Boyzone, literally just left Boyzone, um, had no idea what I was going to do. Uh, Ronan, Stephen, and Mikey had all signed solo deals with various record companies. Shane and I didn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I really didn't know where my future... I was 26 years of age and my fucking career was over. You know, where am I going to go now? What am I going to do? Um, and... I just decided to myself, look, until you figure that out, keep yourself, keep your profile high, you know, keep your yeah. face on the TV, keep, keep, you know, keep your name out there, do a few gigs to try and maintain yourself and hopefully the penny will drop and you'll know what's right uh, for the next move. Um, and I signed a new agent in London called, um, can't remember, <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting old. Honest to God, I can't remember what happened yesterday. Um, anyway, he, he said, look, this is, this is what we, we have an idea for you. Um, we need to get your personality out there. We need to let people see who you are. We need to, you know, we, we need to create this vibe. And the best way to do that is to put you on this show they're going to do called Big Brother. 
You might have seen it. They haven't, they haven't done a celebrity special at this stage. And it was all for comic relief. We weren't being paid. Um, and then, <laughs> then 10 years later, I see like fucking guys going in for 250 grand. They're going, fuck, time is wrong there. <laughs> but uh, we went in for the right reasons. We went in to do it for comic relief. And, and I stayed the whole time. I was, I was uh, there till the last day. Um, and it, 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 was a, 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 it was a hard experience because... I didn't really think that they were going to record us all the time. Yeah. So when I was lying on the sofa with Vanessa Feltz doing my toenails, talking to Anthea Turner about female masturbation, I didn't really think they were going to show that bit. Yeah, like, how, how quickly do you forget? When you're there, Keith, how quickly do you forget? I, I was probably a little bit naive, to be honest. And I, I hadn't seen much reality TV at that stage, so I didn't really think that they would... I was never rude, per se. I was never bold. It was just, you know, I was a married man with kids, so going on TV and speaking about certain subjects is going to, like we were speaking about earlier on, I chose to be in this business. Yeah. My, my mother didn't. My wife didn't. My, my son didn't. You know what I mean? My, I, like, my, my daughter didn't. So whatever I do in the public eye, whether it be positive or negative, affects my family. And a lot of the time in Ireland, we like to... Mention that, you know. Yeah. If somebody fucks up, we like to tell their mammies. Yeah. What the fuck is your son like on that TV show? Disgusting. Talking about masturbation. My God. None of us have ever done that in this country. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? But my wife didn't like it either, you know. And it got me into a little bit of trouble. Um, and there was probably a lot more than I've just mentioned, to be honest. But... When I came out of the house and all the celebrations and the flashing lights and the fucking fireworks and everything else, I was so excited, genuinely. Yeah. Only to be hit by an absolute thunderbolt of lightning because I didn't get to see my wife and kids or my mum or whatever when I came out. My dad and my older brother were there waiting for me and neither of them liked getting on a plane. You know what I mean? <laughs> neither of them liked going anywhere. And I don't even know if my brother even knew I was in a band at one stage. And I just looked and said, what the fuck are you doing here? Where's, where's my wife? Well, um, <laughs> they're not here. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> they're, they're not here. And I said, oh, okay. I said, why? Did I do something wrong? Look, let's just say at one stage you were fucking divorced. <laughs> but you managed to pull it back together before the end. It'll be all right, son. Don't worry. But let just say hello to the nice people and let's go fucking home. <laughs> um, 20 odd years ago, Jesus. When we were backstage, <clears throat> you said something to me that a, a lot of people who are in the public eye say, which is you were envious of my bag. Yeah. And I was explaining, you know, I, I have this bag and I'm not even like properly fucking famous like you are, but I just like to have... Properly famous people always have that opinion of themselves. How do you mean? You are that famous. <laughs> I'm not. In fact, it's it's um it's it's quite impressive and uh, remarkable and uh, and just that you know the very various generations over from the time I've known you, how how you've stayed so um, credible and, and 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 current and now um like my son who'll be 26 next month is a massive fan and you know. We were talking earlier on of a, of a boy that's 19 who told you to ask me a question about a Ballymun flat. He's no fucking idea who I am, but he knows who you are and he's 19. So the point I'm making is 
you, you've had a great ability to, to keep every generation encouraged by what you're doing. And uh, you were right. You were right and correct to wear the bag if you don't want to give away. The best things in life are free. And one of those things is amoninity. Yeah. And you've remained and kept your amoninity, but you've had a very, very successful career like over, over a long, long time. So it was a very wise decision that you made if you want to maintain your anonymity. And at times we all do in this business, we'd all like to be able to go to a restaurant, have dinner and not have people pretend not to, that they're not recording yeah. us and taking photographs of us and then, and then seeing it later on. And it's okay when you're just having a piece of steak, but when you're having to piss down the lane, it's not the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Although if you piss down the lane with a bag on, you'd still get shit, but they won't know who the fuck you are. Exactly. So but, uh, I'm going to get loads of people to put bags on their heads and go piss down lanes all over Ireland. <laughs> Fuck up his career completely. Man, just, there's cons who've done gigs. With, I, I'd, be, I'd be doing a gig down in fucking Kerry years ago and there'd be two cons up in Donegal doing a gig. But then, <laughs> Thank you for all that, Keith. That, that's very, very humbling. Thank you. But... <laughs> fucking blind drunk up there. <coughs> Um, but, like, <laughs> w one thing I was asking you about, which I was fascinated to find out, <clears throat> like, boys on are massive. And <laughs> Sorry, she's loving herself. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking love you on her buzz. How, how does it feel, how does it feel, like, so when you're, when you're in Dublin, when you're in Ireland, you're fucking Keith Duffy. When you're in England, you're Keith Duffy. What was the, when was the last time you got to go somewhere where no one knows Keith Duffy and you're just fucking Keith and you're living a normal life and what did it feel like? I know what you're saying, yeah. I, I mean, in, in the UK, I suppose because I'm not from the UK, yeah. we kind of get celebrated more. You know, yeah. if you go to a restaurant or bar, you might get the odd free dinner or free bar, pint or whatever. That doesn't happen in Dublin, you know. You're lucky not to get out with a slap. I love the question has ended up with, they don't give me fucking free pints in Dublin. They don't give me free dinners in Dublin. It's nice though when you get it. Um, I brought my daughter the weekend before last to, uh, my daughter is a beautiful, special little girl and um, she was 22 on the, the 11th of March, which is two weeks ago. And she wanted to see Anne Frank's house uh, in Amsterdam. And uh, we were going to go to see the Northern Lights for her birthday and then that scared her for some reason and she yeah. changed her mind and she wanted to go to see Anne Frank's house. So we went anyway and I made a deal with her because I tried to encourage her to get involved in whatever we're doing. So I said, look, I'll book the flights and the hotels. You book whatever museums you want to see and, and, and you book us in and da-da-da. So um, I booked Van Gogh for the Friday um, and a couple of... Jeez, he must have been expensive, man. <laughs> <laughs> for the three of us, self-portraits. Um, but my, my daughter, she, she forgot to book <laughs> Anne Frank's house. And when I went online... The day before we were going, I saw it sold out. Yeah. It only can take a certain amount of people. And it goes on sale the first Tuesday of every month. And it's, it's sold out. And you can only buy tickets online. And somebody said to me that if you go up really early in the morning, people queue up. And if, if there's no shows, yeah. you know, you might get in. But that statement was three years old. Um, so, but she was devastated. And, and she has autism. So she wouldn't understand us going to Amsterdam, what's the point of going if we're not going to get in and see Anne Frank's house? She just wouldn't want to go. And we'd already booked the tickets and all. I said, look, we're going to get in to see Anne Frank's house. And how, I didn't know, but I said, we will do it. So um, 
on the Saturday morning, we went and the queues were pretty crazy. And she was cold. She had a bit of a, a bit of a cold coming on and stuff. And I just thought, this isn't going to work. So we went back on the Sunday morning. And I'll, get, I'll answer your question. We were, we were there from 7 o'clock. It opens at 9 o'clock. We were there at 7 o'clock on the Sunday morning. And I caught it because I thought there was going to be big queues again. And uh, it was too cold. So we, we were doing laps of the church. There's a church right outside just to keep warm and stuff. And I'm trying to figure out in my head, when they do open the doors, what you know, kind of baloney am I going to be able to give this guy to try and blag my way in here with my daughter? So I'm considering everything. And I've blagged a lot of shit in my life, to be fair. You know, so I'm, I'm not, it's not that I'm not good at it. I, I, I kind of am, but I, you know, I, I can't not win on this one because it would yeah. break her fucking heart. And that's not what I'm out to do. So by the time it got to 10 to 9, I swear to God, I felt like I'd been there for hours and I was frozen. And they came outside, 10 to 9, they put out the red bars. There was no queues. There was no many people, maybe 12 people, as opposed to Saturday morning, which was crazy. So I thought, oh, we might have a chance now. And they put out the red ropes and I start getting the jitters. I start kind of going, oh, fuck, I hate this shit. And then I'm kind of thinking, is there a bar open? I get a few drinks, <laughs> you know, give me a bit of Dutch courage, you know. And I just said, fuck it. So I said, because I didn't want to use her disability to gain access. But the reality is, it's because of her autism that I need to get her in there because yeah. she won't function, you know, correctly. She'll, she'll have, you know, a, a, lot, a lot of upset over this. Yeah. So I went over to the guy and I said, excuse me, do you speak English? He goes, I do. And, he, and I, I kind of thought, he sounded American. So he might, he might speak English. So I'm not going to have to break things down. So I said, look, listen, please just listen to me for a second. I said, I'm after coming over from Ireland. I said, my, my daughter's birthday and she wanted to go into Anne Frank's house. I've tried to get the tickets online. They were all sold out. I, I, I kind of messed up. And we're going home today. And, I, and as I'm talking, he just thought, he goes, calm down. <laughs> he said, you had me at hello. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, he said, we've been watching you for the last two fucking hours outside, freezing the bollocks off yourself. <laughs> we knew you could read what time we opened that, so we knew you had no fucking tickets. It's all right. Get your daughter and go in and warm yourself up. You'll be fine. You'll be grand. But he didn't have any idea who I was. He was just a fucking nice guy. You know what I mean? And that's, you know... And did it, that feel good? To, to, you, it was you're just, just a human now. You're, you're not worried about, did I get in because... <coughs> exactly. It's the or... first time in my life that I've met someone that was genuinely kind for no reason other than being a good human. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, not yeah, looking yeah. for anything in return, not kind of going, that's Keith Duffy or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was literally they saw a man and his daughter and a man that would do anything for his daughter, which mm -hmm. I would. And he just said, go in there and warm yourself up. You're going to be the first one in, so you'll have the place to yourself. Uh, and it was an amazing experience, actually. So my daughter loved it. Just a clap for that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we get that we get that sometimes in Ireland you don't realise that clapping is actually a group activity and yeah. it sounds much better <laughs> so many people asked me to thank you for the work that you've done for autism awareness in Ireland over the years um, you were Speaking about autism, like in, in the early 2000s, when people were not speaking about it, uh, can you speak a little bit about, about that? Um, yes, I can. Um, I didn't know what it was. I had no idea. Um, that word autism never came into my life before. Um, Mia was born, and Jay, at this stage, was four years of age, and 
we were young enough parents, but we'd had four years of experience of rearing a, a toddler. Um, and Mia wasn't developing the way that Jay had done. And she had some quirky ways about her. Um, and we used to laugh, thinking it was funny. But underneath it all, we were really, really worried. We kind mm. of thought, what the fuck's going on? Um, she did this thing called tensing, where she'd straighten one arm and bend the other one, and she'd kind of go into a dizzy. And <sighs> I used to be kind of funny, and you'd laugh because you were terrified. Yeah. Um, and we didn't really know what to do. And I started asking people, um, you know, what the fuck is wrong with my daughter? I didn't know. So a, a really, a really quick story because it could take forever. I didn't know what it was. I had just come back to live in Ireland. Boyzone had broken up at the end of '99. Mia was born in 2000. A friend of mine asked me to come out to um, a golf course in the south side to to launch their charity day, um, to use my profile or whatever, my celebrity, whatever. To to uh, I didn't even play golf at the time. To to swing a club on the first tee. Um, and they're going to get photographs taken to, to try and promote the charity, to try and get some traction within media and in the newspapers uh, by using my face, basically. So I said, no problem. If I can help out, I'd be happy to. So it was Leopardstown Golf Course. I went out and I stood on the, the first tee and I was there with this man that owned the charity and whatever. And I swung the club and they took a few photographs and the media were happy. The game when golf went on. I was walking back to the clubhouse. I said to the guy, what's the charity? And he goes, it's called the Red Door. Uh, it's, a, it's a school for the appropriate intervention and education for children with autism. And I said to him, sorry for my ignorance, but what's autism? And he said, well, autism is a neurological developmental disorder. And he said, he went on to explain it and none of it made sense. And I, you could see that I got very inquisitive. I think he knew there was a reason I was being inquisitive. And he started telling me about his own daughter and, and the school he had opened with his wife for his daughter. Um, and if he was going to do it for his daughter, he might as well do it for other boys and girls like his daughter. And um, every question I asked him, it became very apparent to me. Mm-hmm. This is like my daughter. This is exactly like my daughter. And it was an amazing breakthrough in one respect because at least now I had a name for what I needed to deal with. But now I had to go and educate myself on what was needed to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, my biggest worry in the world was going home and explaining it to my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, because both of us were up the walls, worried, if I'm honest, you know. Um, I was driving a big Jeep at the time with darkened windows, and I couldn't, I just remember I couldn't wait. These people were very kind and nice and friendly, but there was an explosion in my head, mm-hmm. and I knew I was going to fucking break down, because I, I, it'd been coming and building and building and building and building for so long now. So I got into my car in the car park, and I just burst into tears, and I cried my eyes out got myself together and drove home. Uh, went into the house and I said to Lisa, my wife, I said, Mia has autism. And she gave me the most merciful thump to the jaw. <laughs> Boom. And then she broke down and cried her eyes out and gave me a hug. And we hugged each other and we cried because we both knew. We never heard the word before, but whatever that word meant, we kind of knew that was the word we were looking for. Or maybe not. As the, as, the, as the chance would have. Um, it turned out then that everybody that knew anything about autism, so first things first, a man we met tonight, Brian Whitehead, a good friend of mine, um, he's kind of been a mate of mine a long, long time, and, and uh, he said, I know a guy who has a daughter with autism, we should go and visit him. So he put me in his car and he drove me out there, and we met, met this guy and we sat down, and this guy was an amazing, amazing person. He explained, and I met this guy, I'd worked with him, he, he, he's something to do with the point up at the tree arena. And uh, 
we sat and we spoke for about two hours and it was an emotional day. And he, he basically told me, there's no appropriate intervention or schooling. There's no, no, nothing available to you right now. Unless you get a diagnosis through the state, nobody's even going to recognize your daughter. Um, early intervention is essential for the future of your daughter. But if you can't get a diagnosis, how can you get any type of intervention? So he said, you've got, a bit of a, you've got a bit of a rocky road ahead of you. You've got some obstacles in your way. Um, so it was at that time I kind of thought, right, well, bring it on. So I had to go back, and I was talking to you about this earlier because I hated school and I didn't do very well in school. Um, and I, 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 kinda, I never really believed or thought that, you know, academics were up my street at all. And all of a sudden I had to become a real ac academic. Um, I started reading and, and, and getting the knowledge I needed and... Uh, putting the word out there and ultimately a long story short I found other parents in the same position as myself we got together we created a, a charity per se we got we got a school open and um, the, <laughs> thank you and I do want to say I'm saying this on behalf of, of other parents that were, were standing by my shoulder shoulder to shoulder it wasn't just me um, but we did what we had to do and we got the school going but unfortunately, and we did get a budget for, for the first 12 months. We did, yeah. get, we did get a donation for the first 12 months as a project. We weren't allowed to call it a school. Um, but we could only afford to educate six kids. Mm -hmm. And there was about 15 kids on the list at the time. So 15 families, we had to draw straws. And I picked the 11th straw. So even though I was very vocal in getting the school open, my daughter didn't get a place. Mm -hmm. um, so we went on and we continued our fundraising. And eventually, I think it was six months later, we got to extend the school to 18 children, so it meant mm -hmm. that my daughter got in. Um, and we went on then and, and just kept fighting, and my, my diary just got blocked up then. I was traveling all over the country, meeting different families, trying to create awareness. Just, I just fell into a campaign that we never designed, you know? I just fell Fair into a position play, that we just went everywhere, you know? Fair play. But um, I just say, you know, Autism is a spectrum disorder, ASD, autism spectrum disorder, which means it's very, very slight to very, very like, extreme. And you can be anywhere on that and you mightn't even know it. Um, but if you have a child that's, or you know somebody that has a child that's, that's on the spectrum and it's quite noticeable and you know, they're, they're moderate to extreme on, on the spectrum, early intervention is essential, um, but it's not impossible. Um, so if you want to give a bit of positive news to any of those people that you might know, just say the most important thing at this moment of time is that if you know how to put a smile on that kid's face, well, keep, keep the smile there and the rest we can do while they're smiling. Um, <clears throat> I want to say a big thank you to my guest, Keith Duffy. What a lovely man, what a fucking legend. Thank you. Thank you so much to Keith. Thank you to Ollie for coming to the gig. This was the Blind Boy Podcast. Have a lovely night. God bless you all. God bless you all. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Keith Duffy. Um, if you liked it and you liked the sound of it and the crack of that, like I said, I've got two more Vicar Streets coming up on the 5th of April and the 12th of April. Come along for the fun. I'll be back next week, most likely with a hot take. Until that time, mind yourself, rub a dog, enjoy the lovely long evenings, the clocks went back, do something nice for yourself.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 